Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. We thank you so much for your grace, for your word, for your spirit. We thank you so much for putting us together in a community of believers that we can live out our faith together. And Lord, we ask that as we dig into your word, Lord, that you would come, that you would speak, that you'd speak to your children and open their eyes to your love for us, that you give us fresh hope and love. Lord, we pray for those who are here that don't know you, Lord. We pray that you would come and open their eyes and their hearts to believe the truth, to know that you are the one who loves them more than anyone's ever loved them. And Lord, that you are the place to find true life and true love and true joy and an everlasting hope, Lord. Lord, I hope that it doesn't fade away, that we can know that we're right with you and inherit your kingdom just by faith, just by trusting in your sheer grace. We thank you for that message in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in a series right now in Galatians. We're in uh, Galatians 5, and uh, we're in a series called Finally Free. And it's, uh, it's called Finally Free because the gospel frees us. The gospel frees us in two ways. The gospel frees us from the penalty of our sin, and the gospel frees us from the power of sin. And so the moment you believe, you're freed from the penalty of sin. And then over time, as you apply that belief to your life, you get freed from the power of sin. And we're in Galatians 5, 16 through 25, and we're looking at how does a person who's forgiven start to walk in that freedom? That's what we want to learn today. We want to see how do we walk in that freedom. We did a little bit of a flyover about uh, two weeks ago, and we did Galatians 5 and looked at it in general. Today I want to look at the one command. Do you guys see what the one command is here? It's in verse 16. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What's super cool about that command is it has a promise. Do you see the promise? The promise is if you'll walk by the Spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. And so this is a command with a promise. And we look at this and we think, okay, well, walk by the Spirit. What does that mean? What does walk by the Spirit mean? And walk by the Spirit can mean two different things. It could be by in the sense of direction, so listening to the Spirit's direction, listening to the Spirit's desires, or it could be walk by the Spirit in the Walk by the Spirit's power. So how do we know which one it is? And the way we know which one it is is by the context. So take a look at verse 16. You can see the word walk. This is a really rich word used in the Old Testament that describes the path of a person's life, the direction of their life, the way in which they're walking. If you look at verse 15, it uses the word desire multiple times. You see the desire of the Spirit and the desire of the flesh contrasted. And if you look at verse 18, it says led by the Spirit. If you're led by the Spirit... And then if you look at verse um, 25, it says, walk by the Spirit. Do any of your translations say something different than walk by the Spirit? Verse 25? What is it? Live by the Spirit. It could also be translated, keep in step with the Spirit. Um, And so when we put all those together, we can really see that walk by the Spirit means to happily yield to the Spirit's desires and directions. Okay, there is some part about empowerment here. But the command is to yield happily to the Spirit's desires and directions. And when you were born again, what's really cool is when you were born again, you received new desires. You didn't just get new duties. John Piper says, conversion is the creation of new desires, not just new duties, 
new delights, not just new deeds, new treasures, not just new tasks. Isn't that cool? That when, he, when we came to Christ, we got changed from the inside, and we got new desires. We have things that we desire. And those came from a new person that lives within you, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came within you. He has desires you didn't have before. And so there's these new desires in your heart. And this was a fulfillment, guys, remember, from last week of Ezekiel 36, where it said, God promised, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Isn't that awesome? And you, all of you guys have experienced that, that. You're walking away from the Lord and then all of a sudden you had new desires. You had new desires to be here. You had new desires for his word. You had new desires to love people in a way you didn't love them before. And, but what the, verse 17 is, says is that that's not the only desires we have. Is that right? Do you guys have desires other than the desires of the Spirit as well? We do, right? We have the desires of the flesh. Take a look at verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing what you want to do. So we still have the desires of the flesh to deal with. And I don't have to tell you guys that. You guys know. You know what is the flesh? You guys remember from before? The flesh isn't your body. A lot of bad stuff was done in medieval times, thinking that the flesh was, was the body, and there was all kinds of harsh treatment of the body, thinking that the Bible told us to do that. The Bible doesn't tell us to treat our bodies harshly. The Bible tells us to treat the flesh harshly. And the flesh is, guys, that remnant of the old you. So there's a remnant of the old you before you came to Christ that's still there, and that old remnant is the remnant that's self-satisfied, that's self-sufficient, and self-willed. It's the part of you that doesn't want God, doesn't want his help, and doesn't want his ways. Do you guys still have a part of that in you? Do you guys still have something like that that once in a while raises its ugly head and you say, that's the flesh. We're being fleshly anytime we don't want God, his ways, or his help. And we can go back into that all the time, right? Back and forth, there's this battle. And, and you might ask, and I ask this, it's like, God, why didn't you take that out? You know, when we came to Christ, why didn't you remove it? He's going to remove it at the resurrection, right? The glorification is going to remove this part of us that's in rebellion. But he didn't remove it now. Why do you think he might have left it there? I, I think that the reason why he left it is that God is more glorified if we have to daily learn to prefer him over the things of the world. That he's glorified in every day when you prefer, learn to prefer God over, over the things of the flesh. When we learn to find our true happiness and our true help in him, he's glorified by that. Now, he left the flesh in us, but he also did something else. He mortally wounded it. This is really interesting. Look at verse 24. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You read more about this in uh, Romans 6. But um, when you came to Christ, your old person, your old self, the flesh, was mortally wounded, crucified, and so your sinful passions, a great word for it, crucifixion, because your old passions, your old desires are dying a slow, painful, inevitable death. That's what the Christian life's like, is that old self is dying a slow, painful, inevitable death. And so in the meantime, it's super important if you think about the, your sin within you, the, the fleshly desires you have, that you don't feed them. You know, a lot of times, that, that thing's still there, that flesh is still there, it's crucified, but it's still there, and it's still talking to you, and it wants help, and it wants you to yield to it, and I just want to say to you, do not give the flesh first aid. Do not let it off the cross. Do not make provisions for it. Do not feed it, do not water it, do not listen to it. If anything, pound the nails into it deeper. That's what the Christian life's about, is that old self's nails being pounded in deeper. Because the old, the old self talks to you, doesn't it? It says to you things like, hey... 
don't forget who's in charge. You know, you, I like that you're doing this Christian thing, but you've got within you these, these desires, and they will run you ultimately. Don't you hear your flesh say that? Your flesh says things like, I still own you. You think you can live in a different way? Don't be ridiculous. You know that you're going to do this again. You know you can't resist me forever. Do you hear those voices in your head? That's the flesh. It says one more time. It says, yeah, you know, I know that sin's jacked up and you should stop, but let's, let's ease out of it. You know, let's, let's, let's just, don't be too extreme. Let's do it once a week. Let's, let's do it once every two weeks. It's like, no. You want to drive those nails in further. Martin Luther said this. Temptations, of course, cannot be avoided. But because we can't prevent birds from flying overhead does not mean that we should not let, we, that does not mean that we should let them nest in our hair. He said, just because you can't prevent a bird from flying over you doesn't mean you can't prevent it from nesting in your hair. Okay, so these temptations, these desires of the flesh are something that we need to repent against. They're going to come, but you have the choice of whether or not to let them nest in your hair, right? And my wife was like, well, what about when they like poop on your head? I'm like, okay, that just messes up the whole thing, you know? But um, when, when these desires of the flesh come, we should be praying. We should say, Father, you know, you saw that. You saw that thought. I don't know where it came from. Probably came from my flesh. You saw that thought. I don't want this. You don't want this. We agree. Take this from me. Cast this out of me. Take it away. It's not for us to sit there and wrestle the flesh by ourselves, is it? We call upon God and we say, I agree with you. I don't want this either. Please take this from me. Cast it out of me. Apart from you, I can do nothing. I present my body and my mind to you now. Live through me. Help me walk in the Spirit now. And walking in the Spirit, guys, is happily yielding to the Holy Spirit's desires. And the way Paul wants to help us with this is he wants to show us a clear contrast. That's why you have this um, this list of desires of the flesh, starting in verse 19. And then you have the fruit of the Spirit that starts in verse 22. He wants to put the two lists next to you. Because you need to see very clearly what the flesh wants for your life. And you need to see what, very clearly what the Spirit wants for your life. You need a fair comparison. Because what happens is the flesh tries to confuse you and lie to you. It, it tries to sell you sensuality or sexual immorality and call it love. Right? It wants to sell you divisions and dissensions and call it faithfulness. It likes to try and confuse you. But what he's doing here is he's saying, let's look at a clear comparison of the two, and you decide which one that you want to live in every day. Isn't that cool? It's like I went on Amazon. I was looking for these noise-canceling headphones. I want a kind of a cheap pair, and I'm looking at it, and they'll, they'll put it next to you, right? This is a battery life for this one. This is a battery life for that one. You can compare. That's what this is. This is a comparison between the desires the flesh has for you and the desires the spirit has for you, laying them clearly out. And I think you'll see the difference. Because, guys, if you're going to prefer the desires of the Spirit every week and every day and every moment, you're going to need to love the desires of the Spirit. It's not enough to just feel like you should do it. You have to love holiness. And you know what else? You have to hate your sin. That's why you have hate, by the way. You know, we think like, hate, you know, we shouldn't hate. You should hate. You can hate the devil freely, okay? And you can hate your own sin and your own flesh like crazy. That's what hate's for. And so what I want to do this morning in this first section is let's hate the desires of the flesh together, shall we? Just right now. Let's just hate on it right now together, okay? So look at verse 19. It says, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. First thing to notice here is there's both attitudes and actions here. 
God is equally concerned with what we do externally and what we have in our hearts because he sees our hearts as equally vividly as he sees our lives. And um, we have in the beginning here three attacks on our sexuality. We have sexual immorality, which would be sexual gratification between persons that aren't married to each other. We have impurity, which would be unnatural sexual practices. We have sensuality, which is uncontrolled sexuality. So that would include things like pornography and things like that. So we have a whole host of things. So three things that attack um, your sexuality. We have um, two fleshly attempts at spiritual power. We have idolatry, which is replacing God to find spiritual power. And then we have sorcery, which is not replacement of God, but replacement of his, his power and his, his operation in our lives. We have, after that, we have eight fleshly uh, desires that destroy our relationships. I think it helps to kind of break them down into categories. We went to the Natural History Museum yesterday in San Diego, which was really cool. You know, they take the bugs, they pin them to a board, they go, okay, these ones are related, and these ones are related, and you see the similarities between those. So that's what I'm doing right now. We're like pinning these to a board to look at them. So you have the sexual ones, you have the spiritual ones, idolatry and sorcery. Then you have a whole list of eight of them that destroy our relationships. And he's very interested here in our relationships. There, and within those eight, there's four that are uh, relationship-destroying attitudes, and then you have four relationship-destroying actions. First, the attitudes. Attitudes like enmity, you know, hatred, hostility. You know, you hear people say, even Christians say, I hate people. Okay, that's not okay. Like, that's a thing of the heart. Uh, enmity. Um, rivalries, which would be um, self-seeking competition. And then you have jealousy and envy. Boy, that's a big one in our culture, right? Especially with social media and stuff. En- envy and jealousy, that's coveting or wanting what other people have. So those are the attitudes. Now look at the actions. You have strife, which is um, being the kind of person that, that picks fights, is argumentative, is quarrelsome. You know, you can say, well, I'm just a truth person. Well, no, you're quarrelsome. You know, like that's what you are. Uh, fits of anger, that's when the, the, the anger within us bursts out, you know, and a lot of us, I think we said, you think about our homes, that this can happen in our homes where there's outbursts of anger. Um, dissensions, dissensions are when you side up with other people, this happens in the church, right? Hey, you know, what do you think of that song? You know, I don't like it either. You like those other songs? No, no, okay, well, we'll be this camp, and that's what's happening in divisions is when you form parties with other people, and there's certain people that you don't like in the church, and you form separate, separate camps, separate warring parties, and then we have two ways the flesh tries to destroy us with substances. You have drunkenness, not drinking, but drunkenness. And then you have orgies. Now, this could be sexual, this could be alcohol. In this context, probably alcohol, because you already dealt with the sexual ones above. So you got drunkenness, something you might do by yourself, and then you've got orgies or drinking parties or drinking in excess with other people encouraging you to do so. Okay? And so he's got all these desires of the flesh. This is what the flesh wants for your life. So like, what do you want for my life? Flesh says, this is what I want for your life, but it's never that clear, is it? And the flesh never comes out and says that, right? It's sneaky. And then in verse 21, it says, and things like these. And Paul warns that if we live these things, we're the kind of people that want to inherit the kingdom of God. Look at verse 21. It says, I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It looks like it was Paul's pattern to repeatedly warn people about this. And that word do there, it's really important because you might think like, I've done these. The word do there is a present active participle, which means that it means to practice, to make a habit of. If this is your kind of life, right, Paul says that is a picture of a life that, that doesn't have the Holy Spirit, you know? Because if the Holy Spirit's within you, you've got two sets of desires, right? You've got, you've got the flesh, you've got the spirit, and there's a war, right? There's a war there. If you don't have the spirit, then you just have the flesh. There's no war, there's a complacency. There's a surrender. And he says that those who are living in that kind of surrender won't inherit the kingdom of God. 
Important thing to notice about this list, though, guys, is that he puts sexual immorality and drunkenness in the same list as envy and jealousy and enmity. Isn't that interesting? Something to notice there. One is, is that outward actions and inward actions are the same to God, right? But the other to notice here is that the more respectable religious sins, the sins of religious people like factions. and How many of you guys have been in church before, right? Factions and jealousy, and we don't really have a problem with that here. But that's something I've seen again and again. I'm sure you guys have seen that before. Enmity, jealousy, factions, things like that, gossip, right? That God sees those as equally sinful as somebody that's you know, sleeping around and getting drunk every weekend. Religious people, we tend to separate those and go like, yeah, well, I stopped doing those, and you know, these are tough, so I'm going to kind of keep them around. It's like, no, they're all in one list together, both the irreligious sins and the more religious ones. And so Paul's clear purpose here is he wants to show you how, how hideous the desires of the flesh are and then show you how beautiful the desires of the Spirit are so that you'll happily yield to what the Spirit wants for you. It's like, um, it's like if you're going to take pearls and you want to display them to somebody, you'd put them against a black background. That's what he's doing here. He puts the, he puts the works of the flesh out and then he puts the fruit of the Spirit over it so that it pops. So you can see it and you go, that's what I really want. I want the beauty of the fruit of the Spirit. Look at verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Isn't that awesome? Doesn't it look like so much more beautiful after the backdrop of the, of the desires of the flesh? That, that The Holy Spirit wants to create these in you. And so what I want to do, we just hated on the deeds of the flesh together. Now I want to love the fruit of the Spirit with you. So let's look at the first one, love. You guys know the Greek word for this, famous Greek word, right? Agape, right? You guys realize that that Greek word agape was not in Greek literature before the time of the New Testament. So in classical, there wasn't an agape word used in, in classical Greek. There was phileo, which is a general one. There was eros, which is more of a sexual one. There's storge, which was a family kind of love. But then in the New Testament, you have an explosion of a brand new word, basically. It probably existed before, but in usage, it exploded. And 120 times, roughly, in the New Testament, it uses the word agape. And the reason why a new word was needed is because a new kind of love had entered the world, right? Jesus had come into the world, and he had loved people in a way that we'd never seen before, and we needed a new word to describe it. So that word agape is primarily used for God's love for us, and then it's used secondarily as the love that we re-gift to our neighbors, so you've been loved with that kind of love by God, and then it's your job. You guys get gifts and re-gift them. No, you guys never do that. But that's what we're to do is we get that gift from God, and we're to re-gift it to our neighbors. Agape is a kind of love that serves another person without any regard to what they can do for you, right? Because normal human love is like, I love this person because of what they do for me or what they are for me or what benefit they give. And this love from God is a kind of love that has nothing to do with what you can get from people. It's a love you can even give to your enemies who, have dis, uh, who, who completely don't deserve it. And what's really cool is look again at the list of the, the works of the flesh. How many of those would be repelled and destroyed by love? Basically all of them, right? If you go through and you look at them, you look at sexual immorality, real love would destroy that sin, right? Real love would destroy dissensions and divisions and hatred and jealousy. It has this amazing power to remove all these things. So as the Holy Spirit produces love in us, it repels that whole list. Um, how about joy? Joy. The Bible redefines joy just like it redefined love. In the Greek, Roman Greek culture, joy was an emotion that was highly attached to circumstantial pleasure. 
And so you have a good life, things are going well, you have joy. Of course you would, it's very natural too. But what happened in the, in, the, in the Bible is that joy got redefined. John Piper says that Christian joy, this is a cool definition, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. Isn't that cool? So Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul. It does feel good. Good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. That's what joy is. And it's not based on circumstances. It's entirely fed by the sheer beauty and worth of God. And and joy in the Holy Spirit can and should exist when there's sorrow. This is the weird thing. This is the thing the Greeks wouldn't understand. It's like in 2 Corinthians 6 when Paul says, we're sorrowful yet always rejoicing. To a Greek mindset, like, it doesn't work that way. You know, you're, not, you're not joyful when you're sorrowful. It doesn't work that way. But Paul says, yeah, we're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I want to clear up one thing. Joy is not perkiness. And maybe you're relieved to know that. Joy is not perkiness. Okay, there is a natural kind of perkiness, which is not necessarily the fruit of the Spirit. Somebody can have that kind of perkiness and not have faithfulness, right? Or not have goodness, but they have a perkiness. Um, joy is, the Christian joy is not perkiness. I think sometimes we can mistake when we see somebody who isn't perky and isn't smiling, we can assume they have no joy. But the, the thing is, guys, we have no idea what it took that person to get here. We have no idea what it took that person to get out of bed, get in their car, and come here. The amount of joy it took to get them here, to get them even to show up to service. Joy, guys, is a counterbalance to sorrow. I mean, if think of your emotions as a boat in, a, in the sea, and think of all your sorrows and your stresses and all those things, and they're, they're pushing the ship down, and it's riding lower in the water, and it's, it, it's almost like it's going to sink, right? And then joy of the Holy Spirit is the buoyancy that pushes the ship up, okay? And so the more sorrows and difficulties you have, the more joy you're going to need not to sink. Some of you guys, your ship is traveling very, very low in the water today. You're like kind of bailing it out as you're going. You're like, this thing's real low in the water because you've been weighed down so much by sorrows and stresses. But I'll tell you what, guys, it took a massive amount of joy that your ship didn't sink, right? You have joy in God. You have joy in the Holy Spirit. The evidence of it is that you're moving forward. Not that you're smiling and perky, although that's great, but the, the joy that the Holy Spirit gives is allowing us not to sink, and the more suffering, guys, you have, the more joy in the Lord you're going to need because the joy of the Lord is our strength. Third, peace. The Hebrew counterpart to this word peace is shalom. It means well-being. It means wholeness. Uh, F.B. Meyer says that, that, that joy is, is peace dancing and, um, and peace is joy at rest. And so they relate, right? If you have peace, you have joy. Joy is peace dancing where peace is joy at rest. It's an inner peace that knows from... It comes from knowing that you have peace with God, and so it works like this. You have peace with God, you have peace within, and then you have peace in your relationships. Now, sometimes we can't control the relationships solely, but we're an agent of peace in those relationships, like Romans talks about in Romans 12, where it says, as much as possible with you, be at peace with all men. And so people that have peace with God will have peace within, and they will have peace in their relationships. And that's the context here. If we really look at this passage, this passage is talking about peace in our relationships. That the fruit of the Spirit, peace, is not just that you have peace that, you know, you know your car's breaking down, but you have peace about it. And so that's the fruit of the Spirit as well. But he's talking specifically about our relationships. Because conflict comes from within. James 4 says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? 
right? It's a manifestation of our hearts. And I was saying before, I'm super thankful, guys, that in our church, it's full of people that are peaceful. You guys are incredibly peaceful people. I don't know if that changes someday and it just all gets real or what. But you guys are very peaceful people. You guys are, are people that desire peace with each other. You guys are quick to reconcile, and it's awesome. It's a, it's a display, really, of what's within your heart, that you have peace with God. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Patience. Like peace, Paul is saying that this patience is something in our relationships. This isn't peace about your car trouble or peace about your plumbing problems, though that can be a real thing. It's, it's best captured by the old word forbearance. This is peace that bears with people. You guys have relationships where you just have to bear with people? Probably don't want to acknowledge that right now, but you do, right? We all have relationships where there's people we need to bear with. Patience is that passive, tenacious love for people, okay? It's not talking about doing good for them, but it's talking about sticking with them, bearing with them, putting up with them, continuing to love them over the long haul. The Holy Spirit produces that much-needed quality of hanging in there with people who need long-term, patient love and kindness, right? And we all have those people. The church is always filled with those kind of people, right? Because the church is that last place where a person can be loved that the world is cast off. And so you're going to find in the church people that need long-term, patient love and kindness. And a church should be a place for that. It's one of the uh, fruit of the Spirit, is that we be patient like that. Um, you guys all have friends. You guys all have family that don't change fast. In fact, some people change, they're like glaciers, you know? They're like, I don't know, this person's changing at all, you know? And, and so we kind of lose hope. And patience is sticking with them when change isn't evident and continuing to love them. Um, kindness. Kindness. If patience is the passive, tenacious love, kindness is the active love. Kindness is the, the giving of deeds and words that, that are beneficial to other people. It's not just putting up with people, but actively uh, giving them love. Um, kindness relates to both patience and love, and it's hugely needed in our culture. Um, goodness. Goodness is a weird one because I was digging into the Greek thing on here, and it's, this is kind of a slippery word. It's not a real, it's hard to know exactly what it is. It's kind of like in English where you go like goodness, kind of vague, right? But the best I could find is that is the best synonym to this is probably integrity. So it's a goodness that's throughout the person. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's being the same person everywhere. You know, you're the same person in, in, in private that you are in public. It, it's being um, the same person in every situation, not hypocritical, uh, not just a show. You know, what you see is what you get, right? And our culture is in a massive shakedown right now in the area of integrity. See tons of celebrities, whether they're journalists or um, politicians or entertainers or church leaders, that their private lives have now come out to haunt them and it's destroying them. Goodness is true integrity. It's a life that's the same in public or, or in private. It's what Atticus was described as in To Kill a Mockingbird. It says that Atticus Finch is the same person in his home as he is on the public streets. Isn't that awesome? That's integrity. That's goodness. What about faithfulness? The, word, the Greek word here, pistis, can be translated either faith or faithfulness. So the question is, is the fruit of the Spirit, is it faith or is it faithfulness? Well, when you look at the rest of the list, it's probably faithfulness because it's a list of character qualities. Um, but you guys know that faith and faithfulness are highly connected, right? Like, the reason why a person can be faithful over the long haul to somebody that's not giving them anything that they necessarily desire from that person, they're not meeting any of their needs, the reason why a person can be faithful over the long haul is because they believe God is faithful, right? If you believe God is faithful and he's going to meet your ultimate needs, you can be faithful to others over the long haul. 
And that's what this word's about. It's about faithfulness. It's utter reliability over the long haul, remaining true to your word. Because we live in a culture, right, that's transient and flaky and unfaithful, right? Uh, people that when their needs aren't being met, they're gone. They're quick to, to, to leave. It's a culture where you can just disconnect from anybody. Isn't it refreshing, guys, when you encounter a person that's, that's got friendships they've had for 40 years? You know, it takes to be friends with somebody for 40 years. Faithfulness, right? Um, when you encounter people that have been committed to the same church family for years and years and years. When you see people that have stayed faithful in their marriage until they drop dead. Faithfulness. It's awesome, isn't it? How about gentleness? Gentleness it could also be called meekness. Meekness isn't weakness. You've heard that before? Meekness is, is um, restraining your power so that you don't gain the advantage over another. It's, 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 it's being humble and considering the needs of others. We're gentle and meek when God has humbled us and opened our eyes to the needs that are in our, our neighbors and, and in our church. I, I would just challenge you guys when you come on Sunday morning to, um, we can come here thinking like, I've got life really hard. These people seem to have it all together. Man, I'm like a martyr and a saint, all in one, right? Or we can come here with our eyes open and going, every one of these people has needs that I can't imagine. You know that? When you get to know people, and I got to know most of you, um, you find out the chronic diseases. You find out about the wayward children. You find out about the economic disasters. I mean, it's just, it's overwhelming. As I look out at you guys, and I made a list, it'd be overwhelming to talk about it. It's amazing what people, uh, what the Holy Spirit is able to keep people going in. And, and if we were meek, if we were gentle, we would see that. And as verse 13 literally says, through love perform duties of a slave to one another. I love how that literally reads in verse 13. Through love perform duties of a slave to one another to carry their burdens. Lastly, self-control. I always thought this was the bummer one. Because it doesn't sound much, like much fun, right? Self-control. You're like, I'm going to have a great time on vacation. Tons of self-control. You know, you're like, it just sounds like kind of a bummer, fruit of the Spirit. This is like the coolest fruit of the Spirit, though, actually. Well, maybe not the coolest. Love. I, let's not get into a competition, okay? Let's not rank them. Let's not do that. Self-control is amazing. You know what self-control is? Self-control is the ability to direct yourself to accomplish the things you've chosen to do, even when you don't feel like it. That's a superpower. Self-control is the ability to direct yourself to accomplish what you've chosen to do, even when you don't feel like it. It's amazing, right? It's an amazing fruit of the Spirit. Proverbs say that a man without self-control is like a city without walls. You know what happened to cities without walls in ancient times? People came in and took whatever they wanted, right? Like, you're a city, you got stuff, you got no wall, I'm going to take your stuff. That's what the flesh does to people that don't have self-control. Comes in, takes what it wants, whenever it wants, right? But self-control is really cool. What self-control does is it, it, it allows everything to go in the proper progression. This should be the proper progression in our lives. It should be the Holy Spirit that, that, that directs our um, redeemed mind and soul, that directs our body and emotions, and ignores the flesh, right? That's the way it should work, right? It should be the Holy Spirit directs your redeemed mind and soul to direct your body and your emotions to do what you ought to do, ignoring the flesh. But what happens when we don't have self-control is it flips upside down, right? It's the flesh directing your body and your, and your emotions to tell your mind and soul what to do, ignoring the spirit. It all gets turned upside down. It, it's an example of that would be, you know, when we say on Sunday night, I'm going to eat differently this week, right? I'm going to eat differently this week. 
um, I'm, I'm going to stay within my budget this week, right? Or um, I'm not going to view any more porn this week. Or that's the last time I get drunk on the weekend, right? That's what? That's our mind and soul saying, like, this is what we're going to do. And then the flesh later comes in and says, oh, no, you're not. Acts on the body causes us to follow whatever uh, desires that we have in our flesh. Self-control, guys, is the ability to direct yourself to accomplish what you've chosen to do even when you don't feel like it. And self-control is a spirit-empowered ability. It's a spirit-empowered ability to tell your body what to do. In our culture, we live in a culture very much of our bodies tell us what to do. Spirit-empowered self-control is your redeemed self tells your body what to do. How, How many of you guys would like that? It sounds awesome. I mean, you look at this whole fruit of the Spirit. Don't you love these? Don't you love these? These are the desires of the Spirit in your life. When you say walk in the Spirit and it's to submit to the desires of the Spirit, this is what the Spirit desires. The Spirit desires all these things in your life. Holy Spirit produces this fruit. And when he does, he does something the law can't do. That's why, take a look at verse 23. It says, against such things there is no law, right? Or verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The, the, the point of that is, is when the Holy Spirit, when you're walking in the Spirit and the Holy Spirit is producing these in you, there's really no point to obeying the Mosaic law. Because remember, there were false teachers coming in and they were saying, oh yeah, you guys think you're Christians, but you're not Jews and you need to follow the Mosaic law and you need to get circumcised, you need to do all these things. And he's saying, he's saying, look, the Holy Spirit's producing these in you. What do these false teachers have that can add to this, right? Isn't that awesome? I love that. Is the Holy Spirit. Notice, guys, too, that this fruit, I think it's really easy for us to look at this as a checklist and think, like, I'm going to work on this. I got this. You know, now that I know what they are, I just didn't know what they were. I just need to try real hard to, to live these things. Notice that these are the fruit of the Spirit. It's super important. I know it sounds basic. They are not the fruit of the Christian. You know, as I was preparing for this, I was looking through sermons and stuff, a lot of them are like, the fruit of the Christian life. And it's like, nope. Uh, you know, true signs of a Christian, fruit of the Christian, you know, things like that. This is the fruit of the Spirit, guys. It's not the fruit of the Christian. These are not the works of the Christian. This is the fruit of the Spirit. This is the life of the Holy Spirit coming out through your life, right? Um, this, is, this is a sign that he's living within you, that the Holy Spirit's life is flowing into your heart and out through your body. And, and remember what Paul called the Holy Spirit in chapter 4? I love this. Chapter 4, verse 6. He called the Holy Spirit the Spirit of the Son, and so now you realize where you've seen these before. Because you're listening to these nine characteristics, you're like, I think I've seen these before. I think somebody was like this. Can't exactly think who. And then you realize the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Son. This is the Holy Spirit giving the life of the Son in you. In Christ, we see these perfectly, don't we? In Christ, we see perfect love. Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not when he thought, hey, I could make these really good employees or these people would be really good servants of mine. No, he he loved us when there was nothing for him to gain in it. Isn't that awesome? For the ungodly, for sinners. What about joy? You guys remember how joy stabilized Jesus in his greatest trial? As he was headed to the cross and, and his ship was about to sink. You know, you see that in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and all the sorrows of the cross as he's coming forward to it were piling on him. Do you remember what, what kept him going? Hebrews 12, 2 says, For the joy set before him and he endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus is a perfect man of joy. 
What about peace? What about the peace of Jesus? In Jesus, we see what the New Testament calls the God of peace. Do you realize the only God that exists, is, his name is the God of peace? We see the God of peace reconciling the world through his own blood. He's the God of peace making himself the peace offering. Isn't that amazing? What amazing peace. What about his patience? 2 Peter 3.9 says that God is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What about Jesus' kindness? Isn't that a word you totally use for Jesus when you think about his teaching and the way that he uh, did miracles and he fed the multitudes? He's kind. Think of all the ways, even if you're not a Christian this morning, even if you don't feel inclined to follow him, think of all the ways that God's been kind to you. Right, God's kindness. Even when you, you don't care anything about him most of your days, and yet he's kind to you over and over again. Kind through family, kind through food, kind through good work, kind through weather. Kindness all the time. You know, it says in Romans 2.4 that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. That somehow that kindness melts our hearts and says, okay, I'm the sinner here. I've been in rebellion. You're kind. I give up. Isn't that awesome? That his kindness would wear us down. It says in Ephesians 2.7 that, that Jesus saved us so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to those who believe. Ephesians is saying he's got so much kindness for his people that it's going to like take forever to show it all to you, to unfold it all to you. For endless ages, the immeasurable riches of his kindness. What about Jesus' goodness? Think about integrity. Think about Jesus' goodness. No one was ever able to bring a legit charge against him. You know, right now in the media, you know, you put up a celebrity and it's like, here's six people that say he's done something. Jesus had nobody that had a legit story against him. You guys know in the last day of his life that it's something like six trials. And they said, anybody come on in and make up any story you want and we'll believe it. None of them could stand, right? Their stories would conflict. It, it, it just wasn't legit. Jesus is that fully uh, a person of full integrity. You remember Pilate, he gave the final verdict on all six trials, and he said this, I find no guilt in him. What about Jesus' faithfulness? Think about faithfulness. You think about long-suffering. You think about enduring with somebody for a long period of time. Jesus has been faithful to us to death. You know, Jesus is the friend that laid down his life for us. Jesus has loved us and been faithful. It's like no spouse has ever been faithful to their spouse before. Ephesians 5 talks about it. He loved us and gave himself up for us. He's faithful, right? Faithful to death. Jesus is gentle. Talk about restraining your power to serve others. Here's God in the flesh, enduring with people, being patient with people, and serving them. He was the one that said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. It's God talking. It's God in the flesh saying, I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. What about Jesus' self-control? In the incarnation, Jesus takes on a body, and it's a body that he tells exactly what to do. Isn't that amazing? I just think that's such amazing. It's a real human body, and he tells it exactly what to do. He glorified God perfectly, and then he told his body to submit himself on the cross, and he died for you. If you're in Christ, guys, this is not only God's desire for your life to mirror that. This is how God sees you. You guys realize that? Those fruit of the Spirit are Jesus' ninefold righteousness, and that's a righteousness that God sees on you. You have Jesus' ninefold righteousness. When you look at all those and you think, I don't have self-control, I don't have that, I don't have that. If you're in Christ, that is your righteousness. He sees you with this perfect ninefold righteousness. 
And not only that, he gives you that righteousness, and then he says, okay, I've covered you with Jesus' righteousness. I'm going to treat you as if you have it. And now, send my spirit within you, and let's actually have those percolate out of your life now. Isn't that amazing? That's the gospel, that he gives both forgiveness and freedom. And that's how he's going to answer that promise in verse 16, where he says, walk by the spirit, and then it's a promise, and you will not fulfill or gratify the desires of the flesh. As we see the beauty of the life of the Spirit, and as we desire that life as Christians, and as we happily yield to the Spirit's desires, the Holy Spirit infuses Christ's life through us. It's the exact same thing that Jesus was talking about, abide in me and you'll bear much fruit, right? That, that, that Christ is that fruitful vine. We can see all the fruit of the Spirit coming off of him, and then we're like this dead branch, you know, laying on the ground. And, and he, he makes a little cut in, the, in Christ, and he, he grafts us in. And then what happens? Totally miraculous. What happens is, is that life begins to squeeze out through that branch, and it turns green, and like leaves pop up, and then the fruit. Fruit like crazy, right? The fruit of the Spirit. Whose fruit is it? It's Jesus' fruit. It doesn't belong to us. It's because we're grafted into him. It's amazing. Guys, if you're not a Christian today, if you're not trusting in Christ, and the way you would know is that you're fleshly, Okay? don't want God, don't want his ways, don't want his help, you know, um, then you can't have this fruit. And I know as you read it, you desire it. I mean, who doesn't want it? This is not a bummer. I think that's one thing that people think is like, come to Christ, give you a list of rules, they're all a bummer. Yeah, right. Gentleness, love, joy, total bummer. Don't do it, you know. Like, these are the things that God wants to give you, but you can't have them until you come to Christ because the message of Jesus isn't bear fruit and we'll accept you. The message is, come to Christ, be accepted, and I'll bear fruit through you. It's totally different than any religion. It's probably totally different than you thought Christianity was. And it's awesome. It's something that he will do. Not perfectly, but he does it over time, and it's real. I know that because of you guys. I see it in your lives. If you're a Christian today, and if you've come to trust in Jesus for your righteousness, just remember that the Holy Spirit lives within you. I think we forget this. Holy Spirit lives within you. And the solution to any fruitlessness you feel, do you feel fruitlessness? In some areas? Anybody feel fruitless in some areas? I'm watching for all hands. I know you guys aren't the charismatic type, but like you could totally do this. Like, I'm not telling you to do this. You could do this. Do the introverted hand, you know? Okay. If you feel fruitless, the goal of that is not striving harder, but drawing closer to a person. Right? That's what he's saying here. He says, walk in the Spirit. What does that mean? It means to to be closer to a person. When he says be led by the Spirit, what is it? It's being closer to a person. When he says in verse 24, he says keep in step with the Spirit. It's actually different wording than in verse 16 in the Greek. There's peripateo, and then this is a different word in verse 25. And what this word means, uh, it's uh, stokio, and what it is, it's a really cool word in verse uh, 25, keep in step with the Spirit. It's a Greek word that's a military term, and it means to like march in formation, right? It's march in formation with the Spirit. So it's to be next to the Holy Spirit and go in the same direction as him, stay close to him, just follow what he does. You know, it's marching. Um, The one and only command in this text about Christian transformation is this. Walk closer with this person. Get to know this person, the Holy Spirit, and see what he will do through your life. How do we get closer to him? They're simple things, but I'll remind you. Listen to him. (laughs) How do you get close to anyone? You have to listen. Like, yeah, yeah, uh, what, uh, yeah, we don't listen, right? We don't listen. We stare at our phones, right? We don't listen to each other. Tasha does this thing. She'd be like, what if I told you I already told you? And I'd be like, I bet you did. <laughs> I bet you did. 
right? Listen. How do you grow with a person? You listen to them. You, you listen to their desires. The Holy Spirit's telling you his desires. You know that the Holy Spirit still speaks, right? He speaks in this book. He speaks in this book all the time. He's always ready to meet you in this book. Open it. Pray. And you pray something like this. Open my eyes to see glorious things in your word. Show yourself to me. Show Christ to me again. And give me life in your word. You read Psalm 119. Tons of good, great prayers about the word in there. And then get out a pen, get out a pencil, and listen and write. You know, sometimes, especially with younger people, you hear them say like, you know, I wish God spoke today and he doesn't speak anymore. Why doesn't he speak anymore? Don't complain that God doesn't speak with a closed Bible. Right? He speaks. He speaks to us. And we all know that. You'll be reading and all of a sudden, like something will lift off the page at you and you're like, uh, uh, I don't need to see that. You know? What is that? That's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. That's him speaking life to you. Second, get interested in what he's interested in. How do you get close to a person? By getting interested in what they're interested in. What's the Holy Spirit interested in? The Father and the Son. Totally obsessed. Right? All three persons of the Trinity loving each other. Each one is the other one's favorite subject. Right? He desires to glorify Christ. Ask him to reveal the Father's love to you and the Son's glory. And you know what? He'll do it. You've asked him about his favorite subject. You all know people you'd like to get to know more, and you know what their favorite subject is. Ask them about their favorite subject. Ask the Holy Spirit about his favorite subject, and he'll glorify Christ to you. If you're feeling fruitless, you don't just need to try harder. You need to walk closer to a person. And as we take communion, it's a great opportunity to draw closer to a person. And it's a great opportunity for the Holy Spirit, actually, to um, glorify Jesus. And he does that as he makes real to us Jesus' willing death for us. Right? And so as we take the bread and we take the cup, we remember that he died for us. And it's a great time for the Holy Spirit also to feed us with the presence of Christ. You know, we think about that vine and the branches thing. You know, you're the branch and the vine. And that the Spirit actually uh, infuses the life of the Spirit. He does that through the Word. He does that through prayer. He does it through worship. He does that through fellowship. He does that through the Lord's table as well. The Holy Spirit imparts new desires for God. They're the very desires of Jesus. Isn't this good? It's such good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you so much for the fact that you take care of everything. You take care of everything. You take care of removing our sin. You take care of changing our life. Lord, we pray that we would do the one thing we're commanded to do, which is to walk by the Spirit, to draw near to you, to put ourselves out before you, moment by moment, every day. That we'd wake up in the morning and, and just say, this is, this is my body, I want you to live through it. This is my mind, I want you to think through it. This is my mouth, I want you to speak through it. These are my ears, I want to hear people the way that you hear people. These are my eyes, Lord. Help me to see the things you want me to see and respond to that knowledge the way you want me to respond. Father, we're, we're pretty done living our own lives for ourselves. We're not good at it. We're not good at it in our homes. We're not good at it with our friends. We're not good at it at work. We're not good at it. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Pray, Lord, that you'd come in, Lord, that this would be a time of just where you did something in us. 
where he showed us how to walk by the Spirit. We want to walk by the Spirit. We do not want to gratify the desires of the flesh. What an awful list. And things like those. Thank you so much, Lord. Thank you, you're a father. We're your kids. We don't have anything to earn from you. We just want to respond in love and joy and enjoyment of you, Lord. We want to just be in your presence. We want to enjoy you. Like a father comes home and young kids get all excited and run to the door, Lord. We want to be those kinds of kids for you. That we run to you. We want to be with you. We want to enjoy you. We pray help us to do that in worship today. We pray you'd help us to do that in communion. We pray that after service that we would do that together as we fellowship. We thank you, Lord, for the goodness of your spirit. Thank you of the goodness of your son. Thank you for your goodness to us in Jerusalem. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.